right. We'll just uh, we'll just hit it. Uh, welcome to Origins, the Originative Warrior of Beauty podcast. I'm your host Ron Green, Lucian Nather, and, and I am Carl Emmons. Uh, I am Carl Emmons, aka Blue Scabby. This episode is going to begin a series that follows the Originative Certified Mentorship Program uh, of Holistic Education and Regenerative Practices. So uh, we're going to talk about all things related to holistic education, which uh, also includes conventional education uh, to some degree. And so we'll talk about that. Started off by reframing a question that a lot of people start off with regard to holistic education is what do we mean by holistic? Uh, it's a, it's a word that's thrown around the, the medical industry and the coaching industry. They've claimed it. (laughs) We're, we're solidly um, supporting the, the small entourage of people out there that are, um, that are trying to build an educational scope um, in a holistic fashion. And that, in, in a nutshell, uh, we talk about having to do with the physical body, with the intellect and cognition, with uh, social emotional development and spiritual development and community and cosmic uh, development. So uh, did I leave anything out? Well, uh, when you hit cosmic kind of entailed, what I feel is that that possibility that there's something, well, that certainty that there's something we're not considering. So, yeah, yeah, the mystery. Uh, we talk a lot about the mystery. We refer to the mystery in, with, uh, with a lot of different words. People can pick up on that as we go. Uh, but this particular podcast will, will really deal with our approach to how to consider the whole person. Uh, because we don't only educate children, we're educating ourselves, we're educating our uh, family, we're educating the community, we're educating the, the students that we work with. And uh, with at Originative, we, uh, we really work with students that are from birth to very, very senior years. Uh, we've never really discriminated based on age in terms of who we would... Who we would uh, uh, walk that path with, right? right. We, we usually start off our, uh, our interns with this, framing the field of education as, as a game. And uh, a few, several years ago when Carl and I started a studio school in Costa Rica, one of the first major international influences that we found was Sir Ken Robinson. His videos on TED Talks were were pretty powerful. And he was saying things that we knew based on what we were dealing with in in a uh, non-conventional setting with multiple different age learners and and different types of learners. We were seeing very starkly the the challenges that he was uh, articulating with the current education system. Uh, not just in the U.S., but but worldwide, if not an earnest in parity, right? Right. So we understand that 
in the current crisis of the virus that's affecting the globe, a lot of uh, teachers, parents, uh, students are sort of having an existential moment where they're like, well, what does education mean? Like, how do we do education if it can't be in a conventional classroom with a, with a whiteboard or a smartboard or a chalkboard and one teacher and one room and all of the students are in that room and most often individual desks that are all pointed one direction, right? Uh, there's some variations to that here and there. But in general, alternative education tends to be um, a, just a, a, a little bit of a twist on the conventional idea mm. and not mm. necessarily a complete philosophical change, uh, mostly because it can't be, right? Uh, if it's a public school, you're still tied to the licensing and uh, and charter authorities and and school boards. You're still in the vessel of conventional education as it's evolved to this point right now. So mm-hmm. just saying, hey, let's chuck this, chuck this, let's bring in this, uh, mix and match, and see what happens, is not a freedom that most educators have. Right. So. When you're when you're talking about Ken Robinson, um, the the video that we're referencing is a talk that he did called "Changing Paradigms." We'll be sure to link it, um, but it can also easily be be found online. What I want to touch on is the way in which we met. This is around 2010. We were both educators in Costa Rica, uh, coming from different life experiences, meeting. At that point that we met, and as I was in the classroom, it was really only there that I started to consider, man, all of this is kind of messed up. It, this, is, mm. this wasn't something that, that I grew up in or thought about through high school as an IB student in Chile or through my you know, liberal arts education in Pennsylvania. It, it, it hit as a teacher. Um, and that might be the case for some. I think it also probably hits people as parents. They're like, sure. whoa, 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 okay. All of that, which I just kind of went through, now I'm seeing how messed up it is or kind of, it's not, it's not all held together well. And, and so when, when I think about this concept of paradigm shift, uh, one of the first paradigm shifts that I felt as an educator, thanks to our relationship and what we started to talk about and then do, right? The conversation that has the action was interestingly not, not necessarily connected to what Ken Robinson was putting out, but of the same premise, which was a paradigm shift. For me, one of the first paradigm shifts that I felt starkly in my life as an educator and therefore as an artist as a husband, as a father, was lifelong learning. And that, unfortunately, is pretty popular. It's a nice thing to throw around, but you don't often witness it or experience. And what I do know after 10 years is that that's been something that we've explored, and it is an expectation um, with students that we work for, uh, with 
uh, interns that come through this program that you mentioned, the certified mentorship program, and and all, but the change starts with me, sort of thing, where originative isn't talking about thousands of people going through things. Um, primarily, mm. it's been saying, okay, the change does start with me, and one of these paradigm shifts is there's some things that uh, the world deems that I'm successful at. I have these things. And then there's this whole other dimension of things that I know nothing about. And somehow I succeeded through ending up really having very little to teach or to share of when I'm in and around youth. Um, and it works within that paradigm of the classroom that you were mentioning earlier on. You, you know your content, you know a little bit of classroom management and and you know things are laid out, core standards and, and we, we finagle creative ways, but to meet that, which is a very limited scope. And we can talk about changing that, but if I'm really honest with myself, one of the primary shifts that took place within me was realizing, oh my gosh, it's time to really begin learning in all of the areas that were explored and those that weren't explored, um, you know, in the first 20 or so years of my life. You know, you talked about the, 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 the idea of lifelong learning. Um, it is thrown around. It's, it's a tagline now that we... We have districts and schools that are saying, this is, this is what we want to foster in students. However, one of the interesting challenges that, that they're up against is the idea of what's really built into our society and education is the idea of being done with something, right? Like that's, that's pervasive. Like I'm going to take algebra one and when I'm done with algebra one, I'm done. Wow. Right. That, 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 that is that, that like, if we're going to categorize different things, that's another thing that, that I love that you're highlight, highlighting the idea of being done. I think that is a faulty premise amidst an educational system that, that crumbles at its core because of that mere notion. Right. It's sort of philosophically contradictory to, in some ways. And the idea that we move towards specialization or that we have a tendency to, to try to isolate factors of, of not only advantage, but also factors of challenge. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that we, we say, well, you know, such and such student is really good at art. So they should just be an artist. <laughs> they should, we're going to expect that they take all that's, the art classes. That's another one. Right. And such and such student is, um, well, you know, they have this uh, cognitive or executive functioning uh, anomaly <laughs> going on with them. And so they can't do any of that stuff over there. They're, they're going to have to be in this one classroom. And we have, you know, depending on the, on the, the nature of the, the jargon of politics at the time, we might call it a special ed classroom. We might call it, you know, it used to be a handicapped or a disability. Now it's just a different ability, but but we see we see the language for that attempting to uh, change a system that is always slow to change, if not impossible. And so the jargon always changes faster than the system does, and the system is onto some new politically correctness. Uh, um, and and then we kind of forget what, what 
you know, the, the basic premise of where we're coming from is, um, is that if the intention is lifelong learning, is this really achieving that? And so, and, and, yeah, go well, ahead. And, and what I, what I feel, what I, what I feel has been done well is realizing that the only way to approach something holistic or to express life, to even speak of lifelong learning is a full commitment to that. And that's not something that I knew of before, especially when you touch on, and I love that, that third point, um, the difference of specialization versus, you know, learning of all things. Uh, as a musician myself, songwriter, um, there was a lot of that done recording and touring in my early 20s. It was not influenced by something bigger. I had dropped out of uh, the university to pursue something even more specialized. And that was suggested it was the only way to really even achieve that. And what I realized later on, 10 years later, when, when we were working together, and not directly because th th that's another thing, direct instruction, that's a term used for many things, but to try to teach a specific thing rather than contemplate other aspects that may be learned by just that life experience that involves some teaching. We, 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 you know, so, so oftentimes our, our objectives are so such to the point that we're missing out on what other things may just happen. And just to ground mm. this concept a little bit, it was when, when you decided to bring the oral storytelling tradition to me and ask of a study of that and an execution of that, that became a pathway to, okay, now not only am I a songwriter, but I'm a storyteller. And those things were not being pursued of the same accord, but all of a sudden, uh, years later, I realized how much storytelling and um, the study of myth became reflected in the art that I was trying to put out there. So it, it was in, in such a roundabout way that you couldn't even have noticed. But now we realize, okay, we can have a direct instruction that attempts to achieve something that only sprouts 10 years later. Um, but, you know, sure. for, for educators or, <laughs> or, or parents listening right now, you know, oftentimes uh, we, you know, where it's like a maybe foster care sort of situation, if I can create a certain analogy, like there's a big difference between, you know, and this is kind of like what Waldorf tends to do very well, which is to have the educator be a part of um, the child's life for such a long period of time, which is not the luxury that, that most educators um, in the West have at this point. But right. if we as educators begin to take on a new understanding of education, then that passing on of the baton as the student moves on to something else, especially in the way that we like as a fifth grade teacher receives information on who these individuals are and what life experiences they have and what possible seeds may have been planted over the first four years in grade school, there could be a very different approach as to the instructor saying, hmm, well, this happened three years ago. It's quite possible that this may happen. It may or may not happen now. It may happen four years from now. But the scope of our objectives um, 
needs to really broaden. Uh, right now, it's very specific and, and binding and pressure filled and the students feel that parents feel that as a teacher, we feel that in the classroom that this small thing, and that's the sadness of the whole thing. At the end of the day, it's such a small thing that's desired to be achieved. And we're missing out on the much bigger things. Right. Yeah. I, I so I feel like this, like the, this first part of the conversation has been kind of like driving out to a dive site. You know, if we're going scuba diving, we're, we don't go in from the shore. We got to get our, our, our we got to get situated and then we have some drive time and, and now we're ready to, we're ready to dive in. And the, the meat of this conversation, I, I, th I think that really should be centered around this idea. How would you, how long, if you get a new class, Carl, how long does it take you to learn who those students are? <laughs> Sounds like a trick question, it, well, but I will, while I, yeah. I will engage the game. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, um, th there's, you know, I, I will engage it by, by analogy. You know, I've, I've been married 10 years and that drunken state um, before we said I do uh, was certainly a getting to know each other. And those first two or three years, once we had tied the knot, were a different getting to know each other. And, and the last five years, as things have really taken on their own shape as a family unit and who we are, getting to know somebody that is in continuous transformation it's quite the tricky thing. Here we are, we're given all these people that our task is for them to transform and everybody in the school unit and society and parents are looking for the transformation and maturation or call it what you want. And you're trying to catch up on getting to know this person while they're hopefully um, and almost certainly continuously evolving. So if I'm missing the mark of your question and being abstract, you can hit me, but, but that's certainly how it feels. You're, like going into the forest and let's get to know this garden, right? And woo. Right. So a lot of what we'll talk about in, in Originative it has to do with emergent curriculum because when we meet a person, let's continue with the analogy of, of a, a partner, a lover. Um, scuba. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we can go back to the scuba thing. The scuba lovers. Scuba lovers. So you don't typically meet someone who's going to be your lover and you're like, it's all set up. You're like, okay, well, here's everything you need to know about them. Here's their bank account statement. Here's their resume of jobs and how well they've done and all of the reviews that they've had from their superiors. <laughs> you know, over, and yet that tends to be kind of how, let's choose fifth grade, um, conventional fifth grade teacher, you know, they, they, they may know a little bit about a, a student or, you know, uh, but they get a whole class of, of, of new people and they really have nine months to, to not only figure them out, but then try to participate in the educational process with them, you know, specifically around uh, certain content. And ultimately, the system is designed for the content, not for that relationship development, because we know that that fifth grade teacher is going to stay in fifth grade typically and not be the sixth grade teacher. And what you're really talking about is like, well, these cycles of, hey, I'm going to plant this seed in this learner right now. And then I'm just going to watch. And in 10 years, or, you know, or 15 years, however long it's going to take, I'm going to be so excited to see it sprout. 
right? Yeah. Often we're coming at it from the perspective of you have like a wave of people planting the seeds and they're like, I never even see what these seeds turn into, right? Right, right. I mean, it, you know, it's important to highlight that a considerable aspect of what we do in Originate Eve is also related to the ecology and our relationship with the plant world and with nature. And, and, and the analogy is relevant, um, being able to recognize that the idea of having a farmer that, that is solely in charge of tilling the land um, and then somebody else comes along and sows some seeds and then somebody else comes along. They have no idea what's growing there and does their part. Like if we're really fair with the whole thing, uh, the system is putting out uh, certain results. But one aspect is who is savoring that experience and bringing delight. You know, there's a certain aspect of the completion of the whole thing that, that brings a delight in what we do. And if our aspect is just a grabbing something that we kind of know about and then passing along. I mean, you mentioned nine months, but the first thing that came to my mind was when like those, that first quarter of exams or something, you know, I'm <laughs> thankfully been away from standardization as I've moved into um, early childhood education for the last five years. But talking about a fifth grader that's got their first exams coming up and day one complete strangers and there's no other way than by focusing on the content rather than relationship or possibilities that that those goals and those objectives could be met and we all know that those who are working in our field are hands tied which kind of brings us to this whole new thing that's taking place right now i mean any sort of standardization that exists, it's quickly trying to become standardized, like how we do schooling from home and very quickly got to put this thing back together. But thankfully that's, that's allowed a little bit of breathing room of what can actually be taking place or explore what could take place once we return. I think we're at a very interesting point there. Right. There's a certain amount of, um, you know, that, that stress factor that you, that you mentioned where you got this job to do, you got nine months to do it and uh, here are your goals and objectives. And, and the weight is again on the end, on the conclusion of it. It's like, this has to be a certain way by this time. And then I'm done. I got two months off and then I got to do it again. <laughs> right? And that's not the system as a whole, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of schools and educational processes that are year round, et cetera. But I wonder how much stress would be relieved if we had a longer relationship development with our students. And then you see that something that a student was really struggling with in a year and a half or two years, they got it. Yeah, one one thing that I, I want to continue to highlight as we have this conversation um, is really making it kind of like, for as much as we try to make a classroom or a learning environment student-centered, making sure that our conversation as educators is teacher-centered in that the the changes really have to happen within us, right? I'm, I'm going back to that idea of, I mean, you just mentioned relationship if we're going to begin to consider paradigm shifts, how it is that we foster relationship just with the people that are, we have closest, that we don't have that financial obligation to have a relationship with. 
See, that's what's really at the core of things. This is my job. And to an extent, I need to have a relationship. And that doesn't mean that it's not happening in genuine ways. But that doesn't mean that a re-examination of how I have relationships, what, what are relationships in my life, just as much as a re-examination of, am I a lifelong learner? that is trying to find mm. posture and just being able to be vulnerable, right? And determined to shift with those key aspects is going to be very important to have a consequential shift in what could be, you know, a leap of sorts that we make into new paradigms. But again, my, my point in all of this is that yeah, eventually things may begin to trickle down into the students and whatnot. But if we're thinking about long-term cycles of learning, like who do I want to be as an educator 10 years from now? What kind of relationships do I want to have 10 years from now? What skill sets do I want to have developed that I had not explored 10 years from now? And if that's taking place. There's no way. And this is what we're saying. We have experienced being 10 years in this. There's no way that that cannot then have an effect within the learning environments that we work that we may not be able to predict or put down in paper, but are inevitably happening because as a math teacher, I've taken on art because as a chemist, I've taken on mythology. Um, not as a crash course, not as a professional development weekend, but authentic, autonomous learning that seeks mastery in those areas. Not in areas that we've specialized when we were 20, but as I'm 40, right. moving into, and, and, and if there's an unwillingness or, or, or a non-desire for that, that's understandable. But the premise that you and I are kind of coming from is that we've seen that this works. And we've also seen case upon case where it didn't work because there was a choice not to partake in paradigm shift. And from the there teacher's is a perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Teachers yeah. and interns in, in, in this process. And, you know, that's the same thing that then happens with our learners. Like it won't happen for all of us, um, for all. But but those of us who really take on the things that we're kind of sharing here, um, it it has monumental effects, uh, not only in the places that we work, like I said, but, you know, as a spouse, as a father, as a neighbor, uh, and so on and so forth. Sure. The uh, quintessential empathy, right, is that, uh, as teachers, we put ourselves in the same position that, of, right. of expectation that right. we uh, that we do for the student. Yeah, I mean, if from all of this scuba diving, loving sort of conversation that we've had, we can draw a few things. Then, and then it would be right now. What I would want to share with educators or parents that are listening is, don't worry too much about the kids, the kids will be okay. We know they will. And we'll con continue doing what we're doing and make shifts to it. Right, but right. the real changes that we can really make in, in very concrete areas that we hope to outline in future episodes as we continue this dialogue are within ourselves as parents and educators. And those have immediate 
effects upon the students with whom we work. But if the focus is on curriculum or methodology, and it's these other things, a change of environment. Um, or the technology. What, technology. what application will be the thing that really allows me to do my job? It's like, it's, you're, no. you're right. It's that external focus on something that is needed rather than a particular change. Yeah, and and those are the things that we want to begin to dig into. What does it what what does it mean to have see see that's where for as much as I've become fond of Ken Robinson's speech, and and I use the language and it makes sense and it clicks. I don't know anything about his paradigm shift. Sure. Um, and what, you know, it's not like we've sat and we've chatted like this or worked shoulder to shoulder, but, but he was suggesting that the paradigm shift needed to happen in how schools function. Um, instead of dividing them up by subjects, crisscrossing, what if kids that, you know, learn better in the afternoon were mixed and, and he exposes it all, but there's very little mention, if any at all, and I would not have been able to understand this when we were first looking at it, but in terms of the responsibility as educators, as parents, um, to be that change. And, and that's cliche, unfortunately, at this point, um, but, it, but it is a reality. And that's an exciting conversation that I would love to hear from those who are listening, um, how to really undergo radical change in what we feel it is to be cultured, to culture a, a, a new generation. I, there's a huge responsibility we, that, that education is not seeking to foster culture because we're mostly uncultured. Uh, and, 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 and so the, the best thing that we can do is bring culture into our lives. And then eventually when we have a little bit of that and we have some culture to bring to our family gatherings and our neighborhood gatherings and the way that we see um, diet and, 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 and sustainability and regeneration and all these other things, the generation that's looking at us or sometimes ignoring us, but rightfully so, uh, may have something to get from. I don't want to hear about what's the best platform. I want to hear about substantial lifelong changes that are taking place through all of this that we're going through as a world. Right. I, it popped into my head that the idea of really teaching kids something about like plants or about biology and life cycles within plants can be gotten out of like putting a, a bean in a styrofoam cup full of soil and letting that grow in a windowsill for 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 a few months until you know, beans grow really fast it's, and they're they're pretty durable but typically the kids aren't watching those plants interact as they would in an agricultural setting in a horticultural setting uh, in an ecology they've been separated from their ecology and once that that life cycle is done we're like so now you know about plants, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and it's like, no, <laughs> yeah. no. Um, and when we move that to a larger scale, when they say, okay, look, we're going to do this project, but we're going to do it on a bigger scale. Um, 
ever, we're going to go plant a bunch of these things in the garden. Uh, right? right. And by the way, none of you are able to hold the plant because I'm afraid you're going to drop it. Right? We really right. need the garden to look a certain way. So an interesting little piece of advice that came from Arrow, when we, you know, we've, we've had a relationship with alternative education resource organization for, for several years. But one of the, uh, one of the interesting comments or anecdotes when one of the democratic schools was, was opening up that they have a, a video posted on where they asked the kids, they said, we're going to make a democratic school and this school is really going to be your school. What do you want? And kids said, we want furniture that's not new. <laughs> right. And, and it was all from this perspective of we hate being told that we can't sit on this or we you know, can't use the furniture in, in, this, in this way because it's too nice or it's too new. Um, and we can't use the environment and, and just live in it because we're afraid of damaging it, right? And because the whole thing is this is really kind of a clinical setting. Right. It's not a hands-on workshop. We're going to go build things, break things, uh, right. and, and, things, etc. And 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 that even that even that you know that you need to have worked with that certain mindset of you know there of how having an environment where if th- something gets broke um, it's all right but the intention wasn't to create mayhem the intention wasn't to destroy it happened and it wasn't a costly aftermath of you know a a project gone wrong so we got to be really careful because i've also seen the other extreme of this pendulum of freedom right and and all expression and and so oh like we've been through this so many times that that the red tape of caution kind of grew around me and because what when we create these alternative spaces the deeper understanding of, you know, what we hope to take place and also the alertness of what we may not have thought and in, in an agreement of what's okay. Like that's where complexity of really having a solid grasp of what we're doing here takes place or else we end up in these idealistic ventures that are marketable, especially if we're in within the private sector. But are just as devastating, if not more, because they were kind of pointing towards an alternative, but ended up being just something far cheaper of what uh, deep learning should really look like. Right, right. It's the danger of walking away from, uh, from a learning moment that was so prescribed that everyone can be successful in it prescribed under the, the under the guise of organic sure <laughs> sure and then and then they walk away from it under the parameters that they set out uh, to achieve that marketability that feel goodness they feel the success from that assessment however there's not a substantial depth of learning that's carried on and then built upon um, well, and, and, and we can understand why that's taking place because those, those are the conversations that are not taking place. We, we're not trying to think about depth and breadth 
of learning, if we go back to what you had shared of, you know, a, a fifth grade instructor um, that, that can't possibly, um, not because of them, but because of how all of this is set up, um, be considering what aftermaths of the way that I interacted um, with seeds on said day could have three years from now. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as as we as we kind of finalize this this episode, I want to really touch on on the idea of differentiation and emergence because it has to do with maintaining that pressure that you were kind of uh, speaking about on, on ourselves as instructors to say, hey, that thing happened and I didn't like that that happened. How do I learn from that, mm-hmm. but not take the learning moment away? Right. Mm-hmm. Because so often we say, oh, well, that was a disaster. So I'm going to make sure that that disaster doesn't ever happen again. And one of the things that we've really processed well over the course of our pilot projects is becoming comfortable with those disasters and then looking at almost like you were carrying a nicely arranged tray of seeds and you tripped, right? Yeah, it, yeah. And they, they're everywhere in the garden. You're like, oh no, no. You, you didn't mean to trip, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and the idea that it's like, well, now what? Well, I don't ever want to trip again because that was a disaster. It's like, well, now look what we have. Now we have to identify what's growing based on wherever it fell. And so we've got, we've, be, we've become a lot better, you know, much improved on seeing a disaster and saying, how is this a learning moment in, in ways that I can't imagine, right? Yeah. So we can't put a ceiling on it because there are things that you'll find out that you learned from that, from that disaster 10 years down the road, right? And you're right that, that having a professional environment with other educators that are also thinking that way and, and, and helping to mitigate the stress that comes from feeling like you failed and saying, oh no, look, that's actually a good thing because I, that happened to me once and then this right. happened. <laughs> right. And, and, and that's, that is a great description of, of an exact moment in which it's good to have an instructor or a mentor around. When something has failed miserably and it is used as a moment to understand something that we would not have understood had that tragedy of sorts not happened. You know, I think that's something that we need to touch on in future episodes as well, because that is an example of emergent curriculum and it is emerging from, and it's recognizing that in this mess, um, our reaction and response towards recognizing what sort of learning can and should take place is essential. You keep the expectation for for the learning environment high, just because you couldn't plan on the disaster doesn't mean you don't plan. Right. Right. (laughs) And, 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 and you can only, uh, I kind of want to bite my tongue as I, 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 I go into these, premises of like you can only do that but 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 i really stand behind that we we have to re-engage the learning shoes to truly you know as as we say every mentor is a learner and every learner is a mentor but 
we when we're teaching of that which we have already mastered um we know very little of how that's being perceived when we have reconnected with folly and we understand what it feels like to not be interested in something and accrue interest and how long it took me to accrue interest and and then reflect on what influenced me finally genuinely having interest and therefore satisfaction from a skill set that I chose to develop, we can better understand. Um, and not from a theoretical stance, from an experiential stance, what our students are going through when we say, hey, this is going to be the new thing for the week, you know, or let alone the semester or so on and so forth. So it's really slipping on those shoes as learners and putting some responsibility also on schools here a little bit. The, the school and the administration has to be committed to creating spaces in which teachers aren't required to be the masters. That, 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 that's, that's a paradigm shift. Choose times throughout your week in which you are the weakest link. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and the idea of lifelong learning has to be of a scope beyond what you think your specialty is. Right. Right. So you Absolutely. have to have, you have to have teachers that say, you know what? I, I really love math. I really, I, I feel really comfortable in that subject and that's really what I want to teach. And then you say, that is awesome. You should continue to do this. And uh, how do you feel about cooking? Right. And, right. and, and that, that, that from an administrative role, um, you know, we'll get into legislation and what not, but, but, but just having that mindset that says, okay, this week, what do you want to teach and choose the area in which you're the weakest link and, you know, really shifting people around. And like I said, hopefully not once a semester, not once a quarter, but being able to say, you know, like you're going to learn this, like schools could be such places, environments of enrichment. If we, readily and easily focus on teachers being the learners that would be contagious um since right. Right. this is so popular right now uh if we are, we have an environment of educators that are learning in all of these different fields then therefore children are experiencing what we know which is to witness good learners. Wow, my gosh, that person didn't know how to do that. I mean, how many times have we run into situations where people are like I didn't know that you knew anything about that. And you're like, well, I didn't. When we met, I had no idea. And, and, and when we, we, right. they've seen an evidence of a growth over four or five years, that has a powerful impact. I mean, you've had that on me as I've seen your continued growth um, in terms of well, what yeah, you likewise. knew and who you were versus who you are and what you know now. I think it can't be understated what it is for a student to see the teacher as a learner themselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and if we never leave and, our special In an authentic way, right? Right. Like I, 
I mean, you, you almost get like, I'm almost like nervous all throughout these conversations throwing <laughs> certain ideas out there. I'm like, okay, I'll go act like a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> because when we use the word learner, we're so careful in realizing that it's, it's that pathway towards mastery, you know, that we've out outlined and we can really bring up in future episodes as well, which is saying, stating what it means to truly, truly learn something and moving from all, you know, observation and how learning happens through observation, how learning happens through participation, and then how learning happens at a mastery level. And that even then, mastery involves a continued pursuit of, of learning. There is no mastery of anything that is not a commitment towards continued learning. Right. That, that mastery is also not final. It doesn't have an end. We're always having to remember that statement is that, is that learning doesn't have an end. And to be a lifelong learner means that these illusionary chapters can function in a really debilitating way for the actual process of learning. If there's too much of this concept, not only from the students that they're finished <laughs> with something, right. but, but that that's also coming from and being modeled by the instructor, the system, the culture that we're like, okay, you're, you've got your piece of paper that says you're finished. It's, and the strange reprieve that doesn't last very long, you know, that, that re you, you can relax a little bit after, after you get that paper, but then it's like, well, now what do I gotta go? I gotta go do, I gotta go do this or do that. And I, and, and I think it, it's interesting how you're saying, I gotta, right. Um, that's certainly part of it, but you know, working towards something that has much more to do with, I want to, or I need to from that, that deeper, that like, I have a deep need to do this because it's what I want to do. And so I'm going to do it. You know, there's a paradigm shift there, um, in as well. Right. That is about all the time that we have for this episode. I think we got a lot of things on the table and we'll follow it up with another episode where we just keep drilling into this very cyclically. Uh, we'll talk a lot about cycles and we'll dive into more, uh, more of the process of how planning for emergent curriculum happens. That's something I'm asked constantly right. when, when educators sort of start to see the process and and the value of emergent curriculum, they'll say, well, how, if that's what you're going to do, how would you ever plan for that? And, and there are very intentional ways that, that we can plan for it, but it requires a very different type of thinking around that. Um, Approach to readiness, right? We know, we know, we know we need to be ready. We know that there's preparation to be had there. We know that there's planning. We know that there's objectives. But all of those subcategories are operating from a very different paradigm, just to bring that back. And, and so what we're talking about here, we have the language for, but the, the, but the ideology and the manifestation from which it comes from and strives for is of a different accord that we may not have known when we were in our schooling years and as we first became educators, but has become clear as a pathway towards, you know, really doing education and parenting and so on and so forth in a different way. Right on. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us on this initial 
dive into uh, the process of being a warrior of beauty in education and holistic and regenerative practices. Uh, so thank you. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you back here. Hopefully, definitely send us uh, listeners uh, post any questions or comments or feedback for us, and we will try to address those in uh, in upcoming podcasts. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. We'll catch you guys later. Thank you. Thank you.